Well, name-calling certainly doesn't seem to have hurt Donald Trump among his supporters, but how do religious leaders feel about the way the conversation is going? Joining me now is Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr., who's a Trump supporter. Jerry, thanks so much for, for being with us. When, when you hear Donald Trump refer to Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas when he calls Secretary Clinton a, a lowlife, do you take issue with that at all? Is that a, a Christian thing to do, in your opinion? Well, I'm president of a university. We have a Division I football team. And we have lots of players who might have relatives or friends on opposing teams. But when, when the whistle blows, it's every man for himself. And I think politics is the same way. And I just uh, I think it's the way the, the game is played. It's a blood sport. And I wouldn't expect anything less from somebody who wants to win the presidency. I'm Dan Koch. I'm Ellen Morrow. Welcome to Depolarize, the podcast where we do our best in spite of clips like this, to find common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. Let's get a breather, yeah? Yeah. So this is episode six of the new season of Depolarize. Ellen, thus far, we've done two episodes where we looked at white evangelicals who did not support Trump. We had an episode where we looked more closely at the statistic itself, the 81% of white evangelicals, and we also looked at evangelicalism. And then the last two weeks, we got to hear from our Trump supporters. How are you feeling thus far? I'm feeling a little bit drained, (laughs) (laughs) but it's interesting. It's been awesome. So this week, we are going to get to what was my biggest worry during the election and maybe after, gullibility. Maybe you'd call it an embarrassment that it seemed like white American Christians, especially evangelicals, which is where I was raised in that church, were gullible. It embarrassed me that they might have believed these Christian leaders who were saying things that seemed to me to be obviously untrue about Trump's faith, his character, etc. Did you feel any of that embarrassment or, or worry about gullibility? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of we're talking about Jerry Falwell. So he's really extreme. Yeah. But so it's Dobson, I, you know, Franklin Graham, Beth Moore. I mean, there's a lot of these. Public yeah. Leaders. When you list it like that, I, I like I just assume, well, people know pe- people know that they're so extreme that they know that that's not how I believe. But but maybe that's not true. Maybe I've just been telling myself that. <laughs> so I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> Definitely possible. Well, we want to look into it further this week. We're not going to stop with any simple answers of all evangelicals are stupid or all evangelicals are great. We're going to get down to it. And let's start by hearing from one of our white evangelical non-Trump supporters, who we call the 19%. Here is Ellen, your favorite middle-aged woman, Vicky. I love Vicky. Some of the Christians around you, would, would you describe them as kind of being gullible and being brought into that Christianese language about Trump that, that you would think didn't really fit? Like, is it gullibility or is it something else? That's a good question, because I wouldn't have thought of her as being gullible. She's older than me, and she's just been around a lot. And I don't know. I don't know if it's gullibility or, again, if it's influence from a a group of people that are talking together and sticking together and sharing together. I'm I'm not exactly sure. I don't I don't think she's gullible, although my my opinion of her has changed a little bit. You know, in just little snippets since then. We haven't had a huge talk since then, but I don't so know. So maybe if it's not maybe it's not gullibility, it seems to you more like the community that she is in, this is what most of the people think and how most of them talk about Trump. And so it's natural for her mm-hmm. to believe that as well. Not so much that she's been hoodwinked by some evidence or something like that. I don't, I don't think so. Although when it was after that coffee with her that... All of the stuff came out about him, you know, years ago and all the horrible things he did with women and such. And I thought, surely these people are going to change their minds now or at least look at it. And they had an answer for everything. It was like he was okay, And that was then. And this is now. And he's a different person. That's exactly what I thought. I'm so I'm so in tune to Vicky. What do you mean? That's what you thought? Uh, Well, I just. I want I it, it, Vicky sounds like what I was feeling like there's no way I kept I kept thinking well you mean after the Hollywood access yeah tapes. yeah okay. it's like well obviously this is going to be a scandal I mean the Christian church tends to banish people that don't fall in line with their beliefs and it's just so mind-boggling to me that 
everything that was coming out about Donald Trump's character and his behavior and his, you know, maybe lack of faith or whatever. It was just like Vicky said, there was there was an excuse for everything. There was a reason for everything. It's just mind blowing to me. Well, in some sense, this entire podcast is an answer to the question, why is it that some of us cannot imagine what other people are doing or saying or what their reasons are, right? That's kind of the whole point of Depolarize is to go, okay, well, there's something going on here below the surface that causes these things. But in this particular case, let's just put a little more meat on the bone here. Here's a quote. From James Dobson. You remember James Dobson, don't you, from Growing Up Evangelical? Uh, and also, he gave the very last Ted Bundy interview. Okay, back he's, now we're back he's to serial kind of killers. A crime, he's kind of a true crime legend. <laughs> Is he? Yeah. Of all the things I didn't know about James Dobson, yeah. true crime legend, that was never, I was never going to learn that one unless I met you. Oh, yeah. Ted Bundy on TV confessed his, like, long pornography addiction to James Dobson and he basically said you need to protect your children from this because there's going to be more Ted Bundy's. Wow. That's off topic. <laughs> I'll allow it. I mean, look, there's a little subplot here of how much you like true crime and Yeah, let's not, stop saying I like, like crime. No, you don't like and abortion. Crime. No, you <laughs> don't like crime or abortion, but you like those are your kind of I'm hobbies. interested in those topics. Yeah. The hobby that makes so, it sounds gross. So, anyway, true crime legend of the conservative right, James Dobson. <laughs> gave this quote to the New York Times. Mr. Trump had recently come, quote, to accept a relationship with Christ, unquote, and was now, quote, a baby Christian. I don't know when it was, but it has not been long, Dr. Dobson said. I believe he really made a commitment, but he's a baby Christian. I asked our voters about this claim. Here are three of our white evangelical non-Trump supporters and what they thought about it. saw something the other day on Facebook that was this person said that they looked at Trump as if they were a baby Christian which just sounds ridiculous to me one what does that have to do with anything of in terms of what he's saying you know in terms of policy or or tweets I guess but then that doesn't ever excuse action either so it just because somebody's a, a baby Christian quote unquote that doesn't excuse their behavior behavior is still wrong it's almost like saying things like a child's poor behavior is based upon their lack of sleep or, I mean, it's giving an excuse that really doesn't excuse their bad behavior. When you hear conservative leaders like Falwell or Dobson or Franklin Graham say things like Trump's a baby Christian or he's surrounding himself with good leaders, you know, or God's anointing is on him. How do you react to that? I take a minute because my initial reaction is probably judgmental. So I need to back up and say, I hope so. I hope that if he's a baby Christian, that's awesome. It doesn't excuse what he's doing. I hope so. I pray for him. You know, are you swayed by that language? Do you find it implausible? (laughs) I'm not swayed by it. Do you feel like a lot of people or any people in your community have been swayed by that, or do you think that that's unrelated to their support for him? Sure. Maybe he is a new baby Christian, and we need to accept mistakes, but that doesn't make him a good president. I mean, whether you believe that or not, you know, if I've got a a baby that's making mistakes, I'm not going to put him behind the wheel of the car. So even if their argument is true, even if I wanted to believe that argument, I don't think that that should make me have confidence in him as a president. You know, we don't want to make fun of our voters or anything, but it is a bit of a gap between voting for a 70-year-old man and giving a car to a baby. Yeah, a little bit. Not not equal. Not okay. Not, not a great Arlen's argument. finest metaphorical <laughs> hour. But we get what they were saying, right? Yeah. All three of those voters basically said, "Look, okay, he might be, but it's it's separate." Well, but also, I don't remember who it was in the beginning there that first one. He was saying that there's no excuse. Period. Right. That that behavior has no place in the presidency. So, but today we're not going to talk about that. So we don't care for the purposes of our conversation today, whether or not being a baby Christian makes one qualified for office. I think you and I would agree it does not. But what's at stake today is, 
did people believe that? Because when I hear that quote from James Dobson, I go, yeah, right. Like he's playing you like a fiddle. Sure. And so that's what I want to look at is the, is it gullibility? But also I'd like to point out that if that is true, let's say Donald Trump recently did become a Christian in the last, you know, couple of years, which would be cool, whatever. That's great. Why is it that the evangelical leaders are not shepherding him and calling him out and being, you know, growing him in the faith instead of excusing him for all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you want to take, say, a biblical view on this, you'd look to Paul, and there's all this stuff in the New Testament of like, here's what happens when a person in leadership is sinning publicly, and here are the steps of, you know, they're for a church, but certainly it's like you talk to them, if they don't change, you, you you remove them from the community. There's obviously a sense of accountability in those passages. Right. And that's frankly not what we're seeing from these. Right. Like if you had a pastor of a church and someone in their congregation just became a Christian and that person, you know, cheated on their wife or whatever or started calling everyone an asshole. That's not I call everyone an asshole. That's not a good example. Started doing something a lot <laughs> worse that than disqualifies that. The pastor you. would not it would be I think it would be inappropriate for the pastor to just be like, well, he's a new Christian. There would be more, more work that needs to be done there. But again, for our purposes today, okay, I gotta we're going to leave that. Inter- I like that, but we're going to leave it aside. Cause what we're just asking is, did these potential voters believe these leaders when they said he's a baby Christian, he's repented. That was in the past. Was Dobson the only one they said that? No. Well, he's the one who, I mean that phrase, he's the one who brought that phrase in okay. through that interview, but other people parroted it, of course. Now, to be fair, I also asked this question of our Trump supporters, and not all of them bought these claims either. And it sounds like any of that language about, you know, Trump being the Christian candidate or Mm -hmm. it it didn't have anything to do with your vote for him, really. No. Mm -hmm. Ideally, the president would be a God-fearing Christian. I honestly don't think Donald Trump is a Christian at all. He may be. I can't judge a man's salvation. But, you know, from the fruits that I've seen, I don't think Trump is a Christian, and I don't think Obama's a Christian either. I don't think either of them are. When I asked Seth this question, one of our Trump supporters, he actually gave a really interesting answer where he pointed out a trend that he sees as really problematic within the Christian church that is related to their support for Donald Trump. Let's listen to him. I think that that, that same mentality that puts so much in is such an incredible amount of weight on the executive branch that I that I don't think is appropriate. I think that mentality exists in the church. I think it's thriving in the church. I think it's killing the church. I think the church looks to leaders in a way that's completely unbiblical. I mean, the, the Bible says, yeah, honor your leaders. So that's one thing. But when they say jump and you say how high, there's something wrong. Because your faith is a personal faith between you and Jesus Christ. And that's that's the most important thing a leader could do is to build up that faith is to strengthen that relationship and to point people away from themselves and toward that. Christians who are calling themselves Orthodox Christians are embracing this type of, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, um, super apostle mentality. That might be something on which you and I agree really wholeheartedly, this kind of alpha male mega pastor thing that is really a plague. When those guys who really are functioning from a spiritual platform, step into a civic election and register their opinion in the way that those guys did, I think that it does cross a line because of their position. And I'm speaking biblically there. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that that's the way that we should process a civic election. In fact, we don't have a model in the Bible that reflects what America is. And no, there's a whole pocket of what I guess we could call evangelical Christianity that is this sort of like guns, God, and religion type of evangelicalism that I think is, I just think, wow, like I can't even believe that's that's in the church. Like that's nuts to me. So, you're, um, so your vote for Trump, like you were not swayed by like the Franklin Grahams of the world. Oh, not, no, not at all. I mean, the, the, like the Jerry Falwell Jr.'s. No, I, I mean, I pay so little attention to those guys as it is that it, you know, like for me, for them to all of a sudden like pop in the news, that was kind of weird for me. It was like, why are people giving them a microphone now? Like just, you know, like it just feels like it's meant to polarize. And I, and I feel like from both ends, like that's hurting the evangelical testimony, if you can call it that, in America, lot more long term, in my opinion, than most other things right now. 
That's refreshing to well, hear. We can at least <laughs> cross Seth off the list of Christians who might be gullible. He yeah. is not. He does no. not count as gullible by what we're talking about. What do you think about? I mean, you were at Mars Hill Church. We talked about this every once in a while on the show. I mean, he was talking about this kind of alpha male, big pastor kind of thing. Did that strike anything with you? Well, now anytime anyone says those trigger words, like (laughs) alpha male or type A or mega church, of course, all I can, it's like I can smell the smells and remember what it feels like to be Mm. sitting in the seat and all of that. It all comes rushing back. Does it smell like male sweat? (laughs) No. A lot of perfume, to be honest. Oh, okay. So I wanted to play this clip from Seth because what I think it does is it brings the question of gullibility out away from left versus right, Trump versus Hillary. Because here, Seth voted for Trump, like would do it again. Mm -hmm. I campaigned for Hillary and we both really agree on this gullibility, this particular kind of evangelicalism that to both of us seems very harmful. I like how he put it, this uh, God, guns and religion. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's probably one manifestation, but there's also probably even a non-Southern, you know, less gunsy kind of <laughs> evangelicalism as well. Yeah, you know. sure, sure. Uh, but still, where it's just like, give us a big alpha male leader to follow, and we will forgive whatever. Hallelujah. another claim that we're going to look at. This one's from Jerry Falwell, who we heard from at the beginning, president of Liberty University. Do you think he is an an honest man? I very much think he's an honest man. I've gotten to know him well. He wouldn't have gotten as far as he has in business if he was dishonest. I mean, first of all, a lot of people get pretty far in business by by being dishonest. I mean, I think that's true in the world today. I would point out that the mafia did pretty well. Ellen, you probably have innumerable <laughs> examples from the true crime, crime. world about yeah. business people who are, I mean, to appeal to success as a barometer of honesty is, I mean, that's kind of an insane move, argumentatively. It's not a good argument. Right. So let's move on. <laughs> okay. So I think, of course, that there is a lot of evidence that this is not true of Trump, that Trump is not, in fact, an honest man, whether or not he has succeeded in business. And here's John Ward, editor at Yahoo News, talking about this. So Trump Trump has demonstrated over time no a disdain for facts and truth. You know, I, that's that's just that's a fact that that is the case too because he has repeatedly said things that were demonstrably untrue. My favorite example was I was in New Hampshire. It was uh, a blizzard outside. It was a day or two um I think it was the day before the the primary and I was getting some work done in a coffee shop. And I saw, I was reading through transcripts of the Sunday shows, and Trump had just repeatedly denied ever calling John McCain, I think it was a loser. Anyway, he repeatedly said the opposite, denied ever saying what he had clearly said on camera. And it was just one of these things where I just thought, what is going on here? How can someone running for president say, I never said that thing that I said on camera. It, it just boggled my mind. And he has, he has shown this disdain for truth and facts. Is that a moral failing or, or is that a, you know, is that something else? Does that fall into sort of technical qualifications for the job? I mean, I think it's both um, because yeah, I think- That's a hard one. Yeah. I think that the way that he communicates creates an atmosphere in which it's harder and harder for Americans who live next to each other are related to one another, can agree on on a basic understanding of what is actually happening right now or what happened last year. So earlier, I was really careful to make this distinction between the ability to talk about the gullibility question separate from whether one voted for Donald Trump. So Seth and I really seemed in kind of deep agreement on some of this stuff, being on the opposite side of that line, right? Right. I want to make one more delineation here. We're actually not prosecuting Trump's presidency today. I don't care about that for the purposes of this conversation. If anyone is on trial here, it's not Trump. It's Jerry Falwell. Yeah. We're trying to figure out if these evangelical leaders are speaking honestly and then if people believe them when they say these things. So sticking with the Trump is an honest man claim, 
of course, the examples that John gave are not the only examples. We're going to do a little list. He alleged that there was large-scale voter fraud in American presidential elections. No studies have shown this, and neither he nor his team produced any evidence for this claim. And this is a dangerous claim, implying that the results of a democratic election in the United States of America are not to be trusted is a crazy claim. That's what I call pulling that out of your butt file. Sure. Well, he, he came back to it a lot for whatever reason, but that's a really serious claim. No evidence was given. He claimed that Obama wanted to let in 250,000 refugees from Syria. Completely false. It's hard to say exactly how many would have come from Syria in 2017 had Hillary won. But if the yearly cap had gone up, as John Kerry had indicated, it would have been a total of 100,000 from all countries in the whole world. And I believe the previous year, Syria was like 2,700. So maybe call it 20,000, 30,000 I think he likes to stretch the truth. And I don't think that he believes that stretching the truth is lying. I think he takes a tiny little seed of a fact and then just explodes it and thinks, well, no, there's truth to it. And I think that's how he justifies it. We're going to get to an example of that later. So hold on. Uh, Another one. He said, quote, inner city crime is reaching record levels. By inner city, he means black people crime. Yeah, except though, (laughs) that's false. Inner cities in general saw a one year increase from 2014 to 2015. But overall, crime in all cities has plummeted since the 90s, 60% overall. It is that no kind of all-time high. Maybe one particular neighborhood is, but not nationwide. He loves Chicago also. Yeah, and even I think Chicago, it's dropped a little bit. But that's like the one city where you can kind of say, yeah, maybe it is going up here. He claimed that the omnibus spending bill that Obama signed was funding illegal immigrants crossing from Mexico into Arizona. That bill did not, in fact, do that. In fact, it had money. (laughs) Don't laugh when you do this. It really does. It it makes it very biased. (laughs) Uh, Look, the omnibus bill had money for border security in it. It just literally did the opposite. Yeah. And just before we move on from the honesty claim, I've got two clips here that we will listen to, but there's no reason to comment on them because they're just that silly. I call President Obama and Hillary Clinton the founders of ISIS. They're the founders. Donald Trump refusing to back down from his incorrect claim that President Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton literally created ISIS. I think we'll give Hillary Clinton the, you know, if you're on a sports team, most valuable player, MVP. You get the MVP award. ISIS will hand her the most valuable player award. Her only competition is Barack Obama. Trump first made the claim at a rally in Sunrise, Florida, Wednesday night. And when given the chance to clarify on conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt's show, Trump took it a step farther. I know what you meant. You meant that he created the vacuum. He lost the peace. No, I meant he's the founder of ISIS. I do. He's the most valuable player. I give him the most valuable player award. I give her, too, by the way. But he's not sympathetic to them. He hates them. He's trying to kill them. He was the founder. The way he got out of Iraq, was that was the founding of ISIS. Don't believe those phony numbers when you hear 4.9 and 5% unemployment. The number's probably 28 as high as 35. In fact, I even heard recently 42%. Do you think we'd have gatherings like this if we, were, we had if we had 5% unemployment? Do you really think we'd have these gatherings? Again, we're not actually litigating Trump's presidency, but Falwell said he's an honest guy, and Falwell had all the data that we had at this time. And he's lying. Yeah. <laughs> but so here's an associated question that we might ask that's different. Do these Christian spokespeople themselves believe what they're saying? Does he know that he's stretching the truth or lying? Falwell actually gives us one clue that it might not matter if they believe it at all. I had one pastor tell me that if we don't secure our borders, if we don't rebuild our military to fight terrorism, if we don't do something about the terrible debt problem, then the social issues are going to be a moot point. We've got to save our country first. I mean, that those are the words of someone that does not care about people that don't look like him and don't. Oh, I don't know if that's true. Really? You think it makes him like a racist or something? No, I didn't say racist. I just mean when he said social issues are a moot point until we can put the border walls up. 
He doesn't care about the people within the border. Okay, so that's well, interesting. Where I was going to go with, and by the way, he's he says he's quoting another pastor who said this to him, but obviously he's he's sort of he, well, he loved that it. quote. He's repeating it on national television. But where is this fear coming from? Fox News? Like, are do we have a complete breakdown border crisis? Like, do you think they all get together and meet like the evangelical Illuminati? No, I don't think so. I don't believe I most might. conspiracy theories. But look, so. Aside from there's good conversations to be had at all times about border security and immigration, right. that's fine. But is there such a danger at the border right now that moral questions can wait? <laughs> I mean, I, who, that's a that's a crazy claim. Isn't and that it? doesn't seem like wise stewardship of no. of the country that we've been given to govern. I guess like I'm trying to treat these guys sort of kindly, but like. The arguments are nonsensical as, as far as I can understand them. Well, they're moot. They will be. The arguments are a moot <laughs> or point. Or as Joey Tribbiani would say, it's a cow's opinion. It's a moot point. Oh, my gosh. Doesn't matter. I can't believe I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> Some of these leaders, Jerry Falwell Jr., we mentioned Franklin Graham, James Dobson, but there are more. And I wanted to ask John Ward from Yahoo News, who are these folks and what are they doing right now with Trump? Who is this circle of evangelical leaders around Trump and what are they up to? You've written a good deal about the relationship between certain evangelical Christian leaders and President Trump. First off, can you tell us a little bit about this relationship who are we talking about specifically, and what does that relationship look like? Yeah, I was at an event recently, the Faith Angle Forum, and somebody pointed out that the leaders around Trump, the religious leaders, it's a very odd mix because you have one group that's largely Southern Baptist, and then you have another group that is uh, prosperity preachers. And one, one group, the Southern Baptists, thinks the others are heretics. You know, yeah. on the sort of more establishment side, you have Robert Jeffress, who, who pastors a large Baptist church in Texas. And then he's really been, I think, uh, front and center at the right hand in, in many ways for Trump. But you can't also leave out Jerry Falwell, the president of Liberty University down in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was the first really national evangelical figure to endorse Trump and has been just, you know, totally behind uh, the president every step of the way. Uh, you wrote a piece in October or November, and in it you embedded a tweet by Robert Jeffress, this Texas pastor you mentioned. <laughs> I want to describe it here for our listeners. So it's got Jeffress, who has like partially gray hair, looks to be in like his early 60s. He's smiling at the camera, navy blue suit jacket, white shirt, red tie. He takes up the right half of the frame, you know, like a self-facing camera. Behind him, Trump is talking with another similarly aged white man and a blonde white woman, 50s or 60s. And here's Jeffress's caption in full. Ultimate selfie. Always an honor to visit with our great POTUS. Forget hashtag fake news media. At real Donald Trump, Donald Trump's Twitter handle, is energized and determined to hashtag MAGA to make America great again. There's a lot going on here, John. Can you break this down for us? Like, when was this taken? I'm also interested in the fact that this pastor is using Trump's hashtags, that he's accusing the media of being fake news. Just just give us a expert's look into this moment in time. Put that tweet in a, in a time capsule. Why? Um, well, because of what you just said. It, there is so much going on in it. When you look at this photo, it really requires self-control to exercise charitable, uh, you know, description, but you know, you have a, you have a major religious leader basically playing the part of a, a partisan public relations messenger for a political leader. I do think that there are serious questions raised about the degree to which a, a leader like that is surrendering his, uh, rightful calling his rightful obligation as a religious leader to hold those in power accountable and to have prophetic witness rather than to be a mere loyalist messenger. I think that's the deepest question and problem with this selfie. 
you know, undermining the press, I think just shows a lack of understanding of why, what makes our country great, which is ironic since he's using make America great again as a hashtag. You wrote about a big meeting with these evangelical leaders mm-hmm. two weeks after Charlottesville and one week after the pardon of Joe Arpaio. Jeffress, who we're talking about, was asked to pray. And this was his prayer or an excerpt of his prayer. Quote, this country has been bitterly divided for decades upon decades. And now you have given us a gift. I assume he means God. You've given us a gift. President Donald Trump, who wants to bring healing to this country. And he is bringing healing to this country. End quote. What's going on here? Can you break this down for us as well? Yeah. I mean, it's a, um, it's another sort of use of spiritual authority or spiritual display to validate a political leader and validate his political standing. Um, you know, on substance, his statement that Trump was bringing unity was was um, at odds with you know what we saw and see now. Um, it was, as you said, two weeks after the Charlottesville protests and the terrorist attack by the white supremacists from Ohio which Trump then went out and did not, you know, he kind of condoned some of the people who were marching around the statue of Robert E. Lee chanting, Jews will not replace us. And he said some of those were fine people. Whether that was a product of him being misinformed or confused or whatever, it doesn't really matter, especially since he never corrected himself. Um, and so to say that he was bringing unity to the country, I don't, what's, what's the data point for that? I have no idea. Before we go on, Ellen, can we just check in? How are you? How are you doing over there? I'm okay. <laughs> this is tough stuff, man. It is kind of tough, yeah. This is tough. Okay, so but moving on. Here's well, this no, is what I want to say. I just kind of figured out what I want to get from this podcast, and I know that this is not all about me, but I think basically it's fine with me if people vote for Trump. That's fine. Because that makes sense to me why people vote for Trump. It does not make sense to me why people ignore truths. Well, there's different <laughs> kinds can't. of truths. I mean, Hillary supporters ignore a lot of truths. Yes. Yeah. Right? I didn't I mean, vote for Hillary. Well, I agree. Okay. I did. Uh, Gary Johnson voters ignore truths. I agree. So everyone ignores some truths. Right. Everyone's gullible, Dan. Yes. To some extent, everyone is gullible. That's true. But while we're talking about this stuff where it's like, okay, clearly we have video evidence of this person saying this. And then the next day, this person said, I did not say this. And then a whole culture of people say, well, you can't believe what you see on the news. We trust him. That scares me. I think. I think it scares me. It's a little me. scary. I mean, you can't really address that issue without talking about the declining faith in institutions like the media. And some of that has been the result of genuine problems. And some of that has been exacerbated by non-mainstream media outlets who make a lot of money by sowing distrust of mainstream media outlets. What do you think the answer is? I mean, if we have to come to a solution about biased media causing these really polarized communities what what do we do good question communism (laughs) no it is an answer it is an answer yeah (laughs) state-controlled media it's not working that well in russia or china though so john ward is one of the people who's working on that question and you can listen to his podcast the long game and you can kind of keep up with that policy conversation I think it's a little too big of a question for me to be able to answer. Well, I know, too. I was just thinking out into the universe. Okay. We've got these leaders. They're saying these things. But the next question is, does your average evangelical in the pews listen to them? Do they agree? There seems to actually be evidence to support both answers. Sometimes they do seem to agree. Sometimes it seems like they don't agree. Here's John Ward one more time. Do you have any sense of how many regular pew-sitting American Christians identify with the words and actions of these prominent leaders who are spending time with Trump? I mean, if you go by the polling, it's a very high number. Okay, what do you mean? Well, first of all, 81% of evangelicals self-identified voted for Trump. So that's the baseline, sort of, they went and pulled the lever for him. But since then, there's been, um, I don't have these numbers at my fingertips, but every poll that I've seen, 
of evangelicals since the election has shown steady or increased support for Trump. The thing I actually don't know, because I haven't looked into it, because it just occurred to me for the first time, is whether they are basing their polling universe on likely voters or not. Because that would get to uh, a fissure in the church, in the evangelical church. So what John means here is that sometimes polling firms will weight their results toward what are called likely voters. That is, people who self-identify during the survey call that they are likely to vote in the upcoming election. This always skews the responses of older folks more heavily since people over 50 are significantly more likely to vote than younger people, yada, yada, yada. One other thing is that since I did this interview with John, there have been some polls that show evangelical support for Trump slipping by as many as 12 to 20 points. So keep that in mind. Here he is for the rest of his answer. The, the, the generational divide. I do think that evangelicals over a certain age, 40, 45, or 50, are much more likely to be diehard Trump supporters. Um, and they're also more likely to vote. They'll, they'll self-report that they will certainly vote. And I should also say, when I say evangelical, that studying that term over the past few years has definitely solidified it as a term meaning white conservative Protestants or white conservative evangelicals, because a lot of African-American Christians or Hispanic Christians or Latino Christians might share theological uh, beliefs, but differ dramatically in their political worldview. Younger white evangelicals, I think, are much less lock, stop and barrel with with Trump on a lot of things. We're going to bring one more voice into this discussion here. This is Dr. Daryl G. Hart, a historian who's done a lot of work studying evangelicalism in America. Is there anything to this fear of mine, this fear that Christians were gullible? What do you think? Oh, yeah. I, I think that's definitely the case. My only question as a follow-up, what I want to know is, did people take Jerry Falwell Jr. seriously before this or right. Robert Jeffress before this? I mean, it seems to me that American religion is populated with a lot of people who are hucksters. And there are a lot of Americans who are gullible about this stuff because some of these very successful public, I guess, uh, people seem to command large crowds and probably drive a pretty, pretty good grade of vehicle and probably live in a, in a house with a lot more square footage than I do. So it just seems to me that I, I don't know why we would be surprised that these people seem naive and gullible. I'm not saying that just about you. I'm saying even the way the press covered it at times. It's not like they, these people were coming out of their their studies, you know, having just read translated from the Greek and the Hebrew stuff, and they're, they're these scholarly types who are making these pronouncements. I mean, I don't know. I don't right, you're be... saying no. You're saying there's already like TBN exists, right? I mean, right. I, I just I personally just kind of chalked it up to that, right? So, but you wouldn't necessarily have a reason to believe that more people were influenced by Falwell and Graham, for instance, than already were influenced by those people, right? Of course, for those uninitiated, TBN is Trinity Broadcasting Network. It's it's still a thing. It's a cable channel. You know, the 700 Club with Pat Robertson is still on TV. Obviously, some people do watch these shows. These leaders do exist. I don't think anyone following. under the age of 60 watches TBN, Dan. Well, okay, fine. But there's still a bunch of voters. That's a bunch of voters. Right? Yeah. So it seems like the evidence is going both ways. There's There's certainly something about... Yeah, I mean, these people have a following already. And yeah, there's maybe some gullibility... But there is also some counter evidence. Here is Roxanne Stone from the Barna Group. You'll remember her from episode three. Here's her take on what they know about how influential these kinds of leaders were to evangelical voters. How much did prominent evangelical leaders vocal support of Trump, like Dobson, Falwell, etc., actually convince or swing evangelical voters? Do we have any data that can help us answer that question or not really? This, so this is the data that I have on that specifically. So when evangelicals were asked sort of what is a source of political influence for you, 75% of them say that their religious beliefs are their political influence. 22%, much more than the general population, say that their church's pastor is a huge political influence on them. 7% say that political commentators on the radio are. So we didn't ask specifically about James Dobson or, you know, but that's that's where they would really 
fall into would be that sort of radio. They're more like um, radio personalities. Yeah. Their pastor is three and a half times more likely to sway their vote than are radio personalities. And you would put Falwell Dobson, those guys, Franklin Graham, into the sort of radio personality camp. They're not their own pastor. They're just these Christian right. celebrities. Right. Here's what I think, Dan. I worked at a doctor's office for a really long time. And something that ran deep was this unspoken rule where no health care provider is supposed to talk about their political beliefs, period, mm-hmm. right? And in my mind, a pastor is sort of a spiritual health care provider. Okay. Why do you think that they're not held to the same standards as any other professional? You know what I mean? Like they're they're taking care of you. They are protecting you. They maybe counsel you. How dangerous is it for you to go to have counseling with your pastor and your pastor is influencing you politically that changes your vote maybe? Yeah. You know, that's wild to me. I think a lot of pastors as individuals have become genuinely afraid of something. So in this case, I think that some of these men are genuinely afraid of what a Hillary presidency would look like. I think that some of their fear is unfounded and is based on their voracious Fox well, News appetite. To be honest, they're not practicing what they preach if they're preaching the Bible, because the Bible teaches us to not be afraid, not to act in fear. Yeah. And then there's probably the mixed motivation for some of them that they make a lot of money on stirring up fear and sort of worrying about evil spirits. And yeah, we, and you I know, think coming heal. coming from a mega church, I think I understand now it's less about making a lot of money and more about what you could lose. Hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. I think they're afraid of losing what they have. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about someone like Franklin Graham or Falwell. Most of the people who already listen to them are going to vote for Trump once it's Trump or Hillary. So it actually would be a huge financial disincentive for them to oppose Trump. You know, Russell right. Moore from Southern Baptist Ethics Committee, he may have taken a big hit by opposing Trump. But older sort of Baptist-y kind of but white not men. in heaven. <laughs> right. But back to the evidence, right? I mean, there there's some doubt. Like Roxanne's quote casts a little bit of doubt. We're still only talking about 7% of people who say that radio hosts. That and that's blows the kind my of mind thing. because maybe it's because I've never been at a church where they speak about politics. Mm-hmm. And if they do, it's been very vague and that's okay yeah. with me because they are people. But... I have always grown up listening to, I mean, my mom listened to Rush Limbaugh and it was just like, to me, radio politics is the, it's so heated and that's, that seems like the fuel to the fire to me. I just had no idea those numbers would, would say that. Would be so low, 7%. Right. No, I'm saying like the pastors are way more influential than radio. That's wild. That is interesting. So I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, obviously I've been conducting these interviews for months but also just in reading these responses, reading through the transcripts again. And I think that John Ward's statement here that you're about to hear is probably the most accurate summation of the role of these leaders. Let's hear what he has to say. So your question is whether these supporters of Trump, the religious leaders, were effective in persuading people. I think they gave people permission. I think people like Falwell and Franklin Graham, I think these guys gave people permission to feel like it was okay to support Trump. And I think for a lot of people, that seemed to be all that they needed. So we just heard John Ward mention that perhaps these leaders gave Christians a permission structure. Now, if that's true, where might that permission structure show up? I think I have an idea for a good candidate. And it's this poll that Public Religion Research Institute did that Jonathan Merritt mentioned uh, back in February and which has been brought up before on this show. But here's Robert P. Jones, the CEO of PRRI, from our chat in 2016, explaining this poll. The, the real uh, clincher is that we, we had a question that we asked in 2011 that was around actually when the first round of things came out around Anthony Weiner and his texting issues. Um, yeah. And so we asked a question in that context, and we said, do you think it's possible uh, for a politician to commit immoral acts in their private life and still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public life. Only 30% of evangelicals in 2011 said yes to that question. Uh, you know, drum roll, please. Uh, the, yeah. the number, uh, when we re-asked this question yeah. in this election cycle is 72%. 
So white evangelicals now are more likely to say that a politician can make this distinction between their private and their public life than non-religious Americans are. More than non-religious? Yes, more than non-religious Americans. I'm blown away. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. It's a crazy stat. Anthony Weiner. Well, Anthony Weiner is a Democrat, right? So it's easy for them in the middle of that scandal to say, no, he can't. Or Bill Clinton. Well, but that was before. Wasn't that before they found out that Trump was grabbing No, they they asked the question. I think they asked the question before the Hollywood access tapes. But still, there was plenty of ink on, you know, his affairs and his divorces. And, you know, there's Mm. plenty. It's very interesting to to me. So look, this looks pretty bad, and it is pretty bad. But Michael Ware actually addressed this briefly in our conversation back in 2017, that this kind of hypocrisy goes both ways in American politics. And I thought his nuance here was really helpful and interesting. What changed? Oh, you're not even able to hold in tension the fact that, well, I may decide that I have to vote for Donald Trump out of the options available, but... I still believe moral character is important. No, it actually, the politics actually dissolves the moral convictions to suit the time. To suit the political need. Right. And so if you poll Republican views on immigration reform under George W. Bush, they're much higher than they were under Obama. If you poll uh, Hispanic and African-American support of gay marriage before the president came out in support of it. And after it's much, I mean, it flipped almost overnight. So now you're, you're applying this to the left as well, not just the right here. Oh yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so we need to stop since reclaiming hope has come out. People are like, Oh, you must feel like so politically homeless. (laughs) And, And my response to that is look, the crisis is not that we are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought that we could make our home in politics. Yeah. The, the, the crisis is that we are looking for a politics that will perfectly suit our individual needs when that is not what politics is about. Politics is an inher- – at least in America is an inherently pluralistic, imperfect process. And if you are going to politics looking for your inner needs to be met, if you're going to politics looking to feel a sense of belonging or a sense of inspiration, which I'm not saying it's evil to find those things there, but when you're trying to fill a hole in yourself with political action, then it's very easy to understand how the change in a party platform could change someone's personal views about a topic. That's brilliant. He is. He's pretty brilliant. The problem is that we go to politics for our values, in, in Michael's opinion, rather than let our values dictate our politics. And I think politics have become a lot of people's faith. Oh, yeah. I mean, hashtag resist, right? That is your new tribe. Yeah. Now, it may be that you ought to hashtag resist, but if it's going to become your tribe, you are going to put up some blinders. Yep. And it's just a matter of time till someone does a poll that catches you with your pants down like this PRI poll caught evangelicals. So in light of all this, Ellen, I want to play a clip for you. Just for me? And then I would like you as a woman to respond oh, to the clip. Oh, it is for me. Okay. It is for you. This is Jerry Falwell Jr. reacting to the news of the Hollywood Access tapes. Oh, Jesus, be with me. <laughs> You'll be okay. He's not the same person now that he was back then. I believe he's changed. And Jesus said that if, if you lust after a woman in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. It's, you, you're just as bad as the person who has. And that's why our whole faith is based around the idea that we're all equally bad. We're all sinners. We all need Christ's forgiveness. And that's why evangelicals are so quick to forgive Donald Trump when he asked for forgiveness for things that happened. He forgave the thief on the cross. He forgave the adulterers. He did not forgive the establishment elites. Those were the ones that he he said were a generation of vipers, hypocrites. And they were the ones that he came down hardest on, the religious elite of his day. Why did you ask me that, being a woman? Because of the... Because of the context. Yeah, the context is the Hollywood Access tapes. So Trump gives this sort of half-hearted apology afterwards. He kind of even walks back the apology later and says, it was just locker room talk. Yeah, sure. And then Falwell's, you know, says, 
Yeah, he, he forgave the thief the on the cross. Didn't forgive the establishment elites. Yeah, he's, like, he's making you, it not a, about what it was about. Yeah, does it yeah. I mean is he minimizing this very well, serious? Well, for thing? sure he is. But it could have been about anything. It could have been about Donald Trump. Remember that one time that he made fun of that guy with the crippled a, reporter guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he denied doing it. But then there's uh, clearly he did it. Yeah, video. You know, it's like he could have done anything and Fallwell would have just said the same thing. Look, he yeah. wasn't the same person that oh actually no, that was on the campaign, wasn't it? I would like yeah, I would that like was to on the campaign. I yeah. wish they would have interviewed him about that. To me, the Access Hollywood tapes just shows less about what I don't know. It's more of a an older men thing mm. to me. Yeah. So what jumps out to you is just oh, this is just how people like This is Falwell just respond. how uh yeah. That's just obviously and, and a lot of Older conservative men feel that way about women because if women are being kind of slutty, they deserve whatever they get. Mm. So, you know, everybody has some some role to play in it. Maybe it was what she wore, right? Mm. Yeah. This is Daryl Hart again, the historian of evangelical America. This interview was conducted before Billy Graham passed away. Can we do a thought experiment here with you? Sure. What do you think would have happened if Billy Graham Sr., who remained silent about the election, had come out and said, you should not vote for Donald Trump? What do you think would have been the fallout of that? I think he would have hurt himself. How so? Actually, I I mean, I think the people still would have, who voted for Trump would have still voted for Trump. There was a mood in the country that was uh, anti-anti-Trump. I mean, a number of people I've listened to have chalked up the the support for Trump to the fact that the Post, the Times, the Hollywood, Hollywood, Harvard, whatever, they're all against Trump. Well, then the people who don't like Hollywood, the Post, the Times, et cetera, are going to line up with Trump. And I I think that's where we are. And if Billy Graham had come out and identified with the anti-Trump people, I think he would have been then thrown in with, you know, Washington, Harvard, Hollywood, post and times. And that's why I think he, he might have hurt himself. The thought experiment requires thinking about, or it doesn't require, but it led me to think about Billy Graham in his current condition, which he's coming up on 100, and, and he hasn't done any public activity for a while. So if he were in his prime, though, and he said that, now that would be an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. And I And I don't know where that would have gone, but I also think in his prime, evangelicals were sufficiently, uh, had a number of seats at the table I guess where I'm going is the mood of the country was very different when when Graham was in his prime. And there was maybe more of an effort to bring evangelicals to the center, but there was a a sense of there being a center in politics and society and culture, and evangelicals wanted to be there. I think we've lost that sense of a center. That's really interesting. Yeah. Franklin, the difference between Billy Graham and Franklin Graham might be best summed up by that. There used to be a center and now there isn't. Right. So let's finally, Ellen, answer our question. The question of the episode. Were Trump supporters slash are Christian Trump supporters gullible? What do you think? Yes, because everyone is. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's remarkably sim- similar to my answer, actually. Uh, my answer is yes, they were, insofar as most people are gullible most of the time. I don't know if they were any more so gullible than just your average humans. And I have a few points to this. That PRRI poll is is really quite telling to go from 33% to 76%. Yes, they can commit an immoral act in their private lives. And it's evidence, I think, for what we talk about a lot, Jonathan Haidt's thesis, that the arguments we give for our views come after we have our views, or more accurately, they come because we have these leanings, these sort of deep leanings, not like, a, oh, well, I'm kind of leaning this way, but like an elephant leaning, falling over. And the elephant is going to go that direction. There's serious momentum. So these Christians, they're already leaning towards Trump, or they're leaning anti-establishment, or they're leaning away from Hillary, or they just have momentum toward a broadly speaking white conservative way of seeing the world. So fear of terrorism, conservative immigration feelings, 
for some, there's some racism mixed in, but it's not the main animator. That's just where they were. And so they were going to vote for Trump. Agree, disagree. Agree. I think it was, it's funny to me that Jerry pointed out that in the Bible, Jesus was anti-establishment, but the establishment was the elite religious, yeah, heavy-handed Jerry Falwells. Yeah, maybe. I don't think he yeah. sees the irony there. And I get very confused, actually, when conservative Republicans talk about the establishment, because I don't know who they're talking about. Right. And maybe everyone does, and that's just me being a little bit illiterate well, in I think, politics, but yeah. I don't I don't know what that means, because the establishment, to me, just means, like, the government, and Republicans and conservatives are in control, so I don't understand. Well, I think a lot of times it means the media, it means Hollywood, it means kind of like... Mainstream. Mainstream establishment Pop. elites are like... I don't know, globalist, if you're really into the Trump, Steve Bannon stuff. George Clooney, establishment. I mean, I guess, which is, sounds kind of funny <laughs> when you say it out loud, though. So let's turn this on the left a little bit, for as we do on this show. A lot of liberals... There's a bunch of moral hubris and superiority complex that are mixed in with our political leanings. And actually, I was doing some research about this, and I think we might just briefly note here that studies have shown a link between low religiosity and a belief in advanced alien visitors to Earth, and that non-churchgoers are twice as likely wait, wait, to believe wait, wait, in wait, ghosts. Wait, 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 wait. I need you to break that down just a little bit slower. Okay. You said non-religious people... Yep. Talk to me like here's, I'm a five-year-old. Here's where I'm going with this. I'm going that people want to have faith in something, and so oh, people are this gullible. Is, okay, okay so, so then I heard you right. I got uh, confused, but I heard you right. You right. Well, but I'll say it again. <laughs> okay. On the left, for instance, okay, low religiosity, low religious involvement has been correlated to belief in advanced alien civilizations, and non-churchgoers are twice as likely to believe in ghosts as those who attend church regularly. The link here is just, we want meaning, we want explanations, and we're willing to be gullible, we're willing to listen to the snake oil salesman when we want something. Believing in ghosts without believing in Jesus sounds really f***ing scary to me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Who's yeah. going to save you from the ghost? I know, I, I don't know, that's, that's a good question. So let me try putting this question another way. The arguments that were made by these prominent leaders... Okay, Falwell, Dobson, etc. Are these the reasons that people had for voting for Trump? What do you think? Perhaps. I mean, like we talked about going to Mars Hill, a lot of people worshipped Mark mm -hmm. and put him on the throne. And every word he said, whether he wanted them to or not, they took every bit as gold and, and as truth. And You're so saying there might be people who feel that way about James Dobson or Jerry Falwell. Yeah, or they feel some that way people about kind of latch on to a, a leader, sure. and so there's and some people. It's like a physical yeah. savior for them, and and they just kind of go along with. But certainly, these evangelical leaders don't have a combined reach of like 70 million Americans. I mean, there are some people like that, but by and large, white evangelicals who voted for Trump. I mean, I think it's like 40 million people. They're not all watching the 700 Club. No, and I don't think Falwell has like a podcast or anything, no, right? No, no. I'm glad he doesn't. And actually... We should have him on. Oh my gosh. I don't think he'd say yes. So look, my gut take on this question of, are these the reasons that voters had? I think mostly not. Okay, what was the, what were those numbers? 22% of, so of faith? So for evangelicals by belief in the Barna rubric, 22% said their pastor Pastors. influences their vote. And three... And 7% said radio hosts, and then like 2% TV hosts. I didn't include the whole mm. clip. Yeah. I mean, I think 2% TV personalities, if you're counting Fox News and Kathy CNN, Lee Gifford, though. it's false. People are actually a lot more influenced by TV than they want to admit, but we'll leave that to the side. But listen to this. Liberty in Virginia, the university, actually has its own voting precinct. So the students of Liberty University, Falwell's College, which make up it's their own precinct, in the GOP primary, guess how many voted for Trump, Cruz, and Rubio? What do you think? I don't, I have no idea. Tell me. 8% for Trump, 33% for Cruz, 44% yeah, for Rubio. Yeah, Rubio, because he's young and he's not white. But Rubio, Cruz, 
77% to Trump's 8% of Falwell's actual students. So there is obviously a sense in which what you're saying. not everybody is actually buying this well, stuff. Well, I think it goes back to this age and generational right. thing. Is there some gullibility involved in like the Fox News crowd? Yes, certainly there is. But I actually think Fox News comes prior to Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham. I think that Fox News is more impacting on these people. I would assume so, but we're not those people. So I guess we can't answer for them, but I I assume so. I I assume so. Yeah. Well, certainly they're watching Fox News a lot more than they're watching these Christian shows or whatever. But how are they still in business? Because production costs are very low. I don't know. Very poor old people are sending in their money. But I do agree with John Ward that these people gave voters permission. I think that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. That's the thing I feel most confident saying. They did give them permission. They weren't enough to make them vote for Trump. You agree? Yeah. We've come to an agreement. So if I can just wrap up my personal journey here. During the election. Here's my personal journey. Would you join me on it? During. I need more wine. (laughs) During the election. The thing that most concerned me was, are Christians just a bunch of gullible people? And the answer to that is mostly no. They are fallible humans, and so they had all kinds of reasons, many of which remained unseen to them. But just like I have many reasons for my many political leanings, many of those are unseen to me as well. So I disagree with these particular evangelical voices in a lot of ways. And I think there are some inconsistencies that we can certainly point out about what they've said. But in terms of gullibility, the situation is not as bad as I feared. Thank you guys for listening. Please consider sending this episode to a few friends that you think might be interested as well. Perhaps it can be a good conversation starter. Next week, we'll be starting our series of episodes on non-evangelical Christians. Now, to remind you, the way we got to that group is that we have four groups of voters this season that we interviewed. White evangelical Trump supporters white evangelical non-Trump supporters. But then we thought, well, not all Christians are white or evangelical. So we had these episodes with non-white Christians, Christians of color. And now we get to our final group, non-evangelical Christians. Next week, we'll be focusing on liberal mainline Protestants. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry. We're going to explain that at the top of the episode. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Our show is mixed by Chris Keen, and you can reach me for all things depolarize at depolarizepodcast at gmail.com. 